Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Deborah Matthews. Deborah was present with tissues at the ready during the negotiations between the Spanish and Dutch, and these tissues were needed once the Spanish delegate Gaspar de Bracamonte third Count of Peñaranda, burst into tears at Dutch intransigence. Good for you, Deborah. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go by now. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 80 of the 30 Years War. We're on our last legs with this series, history friends, nearly 10 episodes deep into analysing the Peace of Westphalia. Getting to the bottom of what happened is important, of course it is, but it's also difficult because precious few accounts actually take the time to analyse what happened By the time you get to this point, in most studies of the Thirty Years' War, it seems like the authors are pretty eager to fast-forward the story up to 1648 and pretty much just summarise what was agreed to. Us, on the other hand, well, we believe that the more fascinating elements of the story are found once we dig a little deeper. So in this episode, we're going to set to a few tasks. What were Cardinal Mazarin's guiding principles? How did the religious settlement come about? And how was it solved? Did the battlefield affect the negotiations all that much? And why did Trotmansdorf, the imperial delegate, suddenly leave Munster in summer 1647? What impact did the resolution of the Spanish-Dutch war have on the Swedes and French? Yes, as you can see, the story might be winding down, but we've still got a few bits left to cover. So if you're ready, let's not waste any more time. I will now take you back once again to the Westphalian negotiations. The Cardinal wanted everyone to believe that peace was not only his inclination, but also his interest, and he talked about it so much and with such strong expressions that he almost persuaded himself that he wanted some peace, to which he was in fact averse. These were the words of Abraham de Wickefort, a Dutch historian and diplomat, and a contemporary of Cardinal Mazarin. Was this a fair estimation of the Cardinal's character? Historians have been somewhat puzzled by the ambitions and intentions of Cardinal Richelieu's successor, with some suggesting he was animated by a struggle for Christendom, others declaring that he saved Catholic France from destruction 
by its enemies, and others still opining that Mazarin's aims for the Thirty Years' War were all of a defensive character. We are told that he was obsessed with preventing a repeat of 1636 when Paris was threatened by an army from the Spanish Netherlands. To guard against this, of course, towns in Flanders had to be seized, and Picardy itself would have to be heavily reinforced. Furthermore, by taking Alsace, the Spanish road would be forever severed. Indeed, it was because Mazarin had pushed for the absorption of Alsace that his plenipotentiaries at Munster were able to declare, in reference to the Spanish road, that this dangerous communication of the forces of the House of Austria, which our fathers feared, is now broken and discontinued. This was no small achievement, but to what end had Mazarin cut Spain off from Brussels? What were Mazarin's defining principles? Did he have any, or was he just eternally flexible and ever watchful of the unfolding situation? Was he simply looking for an opportunity to grab as much land for France as possible? Well, his vision seemed to grow as French prospects improved, but there was also an element of strategic sense behind the French expansion. Without the fortress of Brissac, for example, Alsace would be much harder to defend, so France would require both. Without the fortress of Philipsburg, it would be too easy to threaten Lorraine and cross the Rhine, so France would need that as well. Without the bishoprics of Metz, Toul and Verdun, it would be difficult to establish a permanent French base in the Rhineland area, so yes, these would also have to be seized. On the surface, capturing strategically placed fortresses might seem like the core of a defensive strategy, because from here, minimal French garrisons would theoretically be able to halt or at least delay a larger army. But at the same time, as Mazarin well understood, the inverse was also true. A small French army could defend in their place, but a larger French army could also pass through them, across the Rhine and into the German lands. This latter point, and the implications of it for the projection of French power into the Holy Roman Empire, cannot be ignored. Not merely in his strategic conception of the French interest, but also in the diplomatic picture of Europe, Mazarin's kind of hard to figure out. Some have taken to calling him a Christian internationalist, who worked hard to defend a divided Christian West against the creeping Turkish threat. But is this a fair analysis? Mazarin was perfectly willing to provide soldiers to defend against the Turk, and even to ally with the Habsburgs in order to do it. He was even reported to have promised Emperor Ferdinand that France would support Vienna after the war against the Turk, if it proved necessary. But this promise is less selfless than we might suspect. The Turks remained occupied by their war with Safavid Persia throughout the virtual entirety of the Thirty Years' War, which was immensely fortunate for the Habsburgs and also kind of for us, because, yeah, there's enough going on at the moment, really, to be honest. But there's no indication that if the circumstances had been different, Mazarin would not have emulated the old policy of French kings, who had thought of France's interest before that of Christendom. Indeed, he's even recorded as having confessed to the French delegation in 1645 that any promise of military aid to the Habsburgs was part of a wider strategy. It would be useful not to lose any occasion to keep talking to the mediators and always assure them more that France will take marvellous action for the good of Christendom against the Turks, provided that peace is made. It appears that this motive will cause them to put all of their efforts into getting our enemies to concede the conditions that we desire.
the litmus test for Mazarin would be Spain. He was not about to make peace with France's mortal enemy for the sake of aiding her against the Turks, but by refraining from declaring one way or another, Mazarin could keep the Spanish guessing, and therefore hoping that if the Habsburgs truly were threatened, France would rescue them in the name of the common Catholic interest. Some hints that he would not abandon a threatened Christendom had already been given. Not only had he made that aforementioned promise to the Emperor's agents, Mazarin had also proposed a naval truce with Spain in 1645, and suggested soldiers could be sent to aid Spain as well. But Mazarin never went much further than this. Money was never promised, and those famous French subsidies which powered the Swedish and Dutch war efforts would plainly never be seen by the Habsburgs in the event of a Turkish war. It could not be guaranteed that the Spanish would not simply hoard these subsidies and use them against France, either now or at a later date. The provision of French soldiers, Mazarin admitted, was a less useful contribution than money, but as he pointed out, when the war ended, these soldiers would have to be used for something, so it may as well be fighting the infidel. From this, we can conclude Mazarin's interest in defending Catholicism only went so far. Certainly, he never felt restrained by his faith, which by all accounts was very real. He simply placed the interests of France above those of religion, although he was not above making statements to the contrary which would appease his critics. And Mazarin has been criticised as a self-interested Italian, as a power-hungry Machiavellian, and as a faithless neo-realist. Perhaps in some way Mazarin was all of these things, but if so, he was by no means different in those respects to his contemporaries. He was willing to come under criticism by the enemy, especially when discussing France's genuine desire for peace. As we've seen, Mazarin was averse to risking France's predominance in continued battlefield success, and he would have preferred a favourable peace as soon as it presented itself. This was especially true as the domestic situation in France deteriorated. But at the same time, he was also unwilling to relent when times were difficult, as he was once heard to remark to Claude Davout that, I am not at all unhappy that the Spanish accuse me of having an aversion to peace. It means, to judge it soundly, that I know their weakness and the good state of our affairs, and that I do not want to lose the great advantages that France can gain in such a conjecture, and consequently they declare me, by this accusation, to be a very good Frenchman, as I effectively am. A good Frenchman he may have been, but Mazarin was not ignorant of the practical realities that governed geopolitics. He appreciated that maintaining the alliance with Sweden was vital if the emperor was going to be continually pressured, and France was going to be permitted to focus most of its attentions on Spain. The war with Spain was, for Mazarin, the main event, and this explains why France's returns from the war with Germany was surprisingly minimal. With most of his attention on the King of Spain, Mazarin was anxious about changes in circumstance, such as a Swedish peace with the Emperor, or, most notably, a Dutch peace with the Spanish. These developments would upset the balance, and potentially leave France alone to face the full might of the united, albeit depleted, Habsburg dynasty. On the other hand, if Mazarin could use the threat of peace with the Emperor in his negotiations with Spain, this might net some valuable returns. It was, in some senses, a race to make peace, and Mazarin was altogether determined to make it over the finish line first. 
Considering these interests, we may deduce that anything which threatened France's position in the war with Spain was to be avoided. This included offending the emperor by making too mighty a demand. Offending one's allies or enemies at this sensitive moment was a recipe for disaster. In his Bavarian negotiations, which arguably culminated in the conclusion of a truce in March 1647, Mazarin balanced the desire to create a Catholic party allied to France with the danger of alienating the Swedes and Protestant Germans. It was a delicate balancing act indeed, made all the more so because during the spring and summer of 1647, the two sides seemed poised to settle the religious question once and for all. After posing as the friend of Protestant German liberties, as much as she was the natural ideological ally of German Catholics like Bavaria, how would France weigh in on this very weighted debate? The debate was itself grounded in the ripples caused by the Reformation, but it had been codified with the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, which permitted the existence of the two denominations, the Protestants and Catholics. There was much that the Peace of Augsburg legislated for, but there was also much that it had left deliberately vague, so as to protect against the resumptions of a religious war which had rippled through Germany during the first half of the 16th century. To an extent, this vagueness had worked, and the empire had enjoyed relative peace until 1618, at least in comparison to our neighbours. With the need for a lasting peace foremost in the minds of the plenipotentiaries at Westphalia, though, one could no longer afford to be vague when discussing religious matters, and this lack of freedom had the potential to delay the negotiations indefinitely. After three decades of war, of course, there was a serious shortage of goodwill between the two denominations, and there were also scores in need of settling, which in some cases dated back to even before the Peace of Augsburg itself. This was not the first time a solution to the religious problem had been debated, in the Peace of Prague in 1635, and the Deputation Diet in 1640, the prospects for both religious groups were discussed, and in 1635, then-Emperor Ferdinand II made some important concessions. 1635 was an era ago, though, compared to 1647. In that 12-year period, the war had been transformed from a conflict which united the Germans against the invader to an exhausting slog which now counted only the emperor himself as the sole German actor of note in the contest. Vienna's reliance on Spain as its source of power had since been exposed, with the deterioration of Madrid following years of revolts and the arrival of the war with France on her very doorstep. Perhaps the emperor could draw from some of these earlier agreements which had been made with the German princes, but he would certainly be unable to count on the kind of support that his father had enjoyed when he rallied German opinion to his side. There is little benefit to be accrued from examining the almost weekly fluctuations in the religious negotiations, though, so don't worry, we're not going to do that. Broadly speaking, we can discern three phases in the negotiations. The first stage began once the negotiators arrived, and was characterised by the later arrival of the representatives for the German estates, Trotmansdorf taking the initiative even without the full consent of all parties, and input from Queen Christina of Sweden, among others, who insisted that the negotiations be concluded briskly and concessions be made where possible. 
Christina may have leaned towards a sense of sympathy with the Catholics, and her later conversion and abdication certainly made this possible, but she proved unable to fully persuade the more hardline Protestant Germans, or even her more uncompromising subjects, such as the Swedish Chancellor Oxenstierna. The first phase came tantalisingly close to resolving the situation, though, and in April 1647, Preliminary treaties containing the entirety of the issues already agreed to were drawn up by the Emperor, France and Sweden. This optimism was premature though, because in July 1647, after coming under fire for proceeding without the full consent of the parties, Trotmansdorf left Münster for good. This was a seriously significant moment, because the Emperor's personal friend and delegate had been leading the charge in the realm of compromise and moderation since his arrival in November 1645. With Trotmansdorf's absence, would the negotiations be significantly delayed or even collapse altogether? In fact, the negotiations just entered a new phase. During the summer of 1647, while the truce with Bavaria was still in place and Count Melander attempted to take Field Marshal Wrangel down a peg, the religious settlement was effectively put on hold. Now it was time for the armies to do the talking, as perhaps the final effort to wrest some leverage from the military situation followed. We learned before that Count Melander repelled Gustav Wrangel in a limited skirmish, but of far more consequence was the apparent decline in relations between the Swedish and French high commands, which had culminated when Saxons, under the command of Marshal Turenne, had defected to a Swedish subordinate. Turenne's initial ambition to besiege Luxembourg and preempt the Spanish counterattack had to be abandoned, and in retaliation, Mazarin neglected to provide Sweden with its full subsidy for that quarter. Oh boy, this compelled the momentarily broke Gustav Wrangel to seek quarters in Saxony, and it also meant that he was unable to strike back at the Emperor's forces for the remainder of 1647. By the time these issues had matured, Maximilian of Bavaria had tried his hand again and had re-entered the war against Sweden, but his relations with the Emperor had suffered a knock as well. Maximilian's leading commander, Jan van Werth, was effectively disowned because he attempted to defect to Melander's army while Bavaria was at peace, and the Emperor was disappointed to learn that Maximilian had not decommissioned his army as he had expected. Certainly, Maximilian had learned that his greatest source of power and leverage lay in his army of nearly 20,000 men, which somehow still existed, and when neither diplomatic nor religious settlements were forthcoming after the summer of operations, the Bavarian elector took heed from the Emperor's apparent resurgence, however temporary, to attack Swedish positions in early September 1647. These developments, convoluted and complicated though they were, had a noted impact upon the negotiations at Münster and Osnabrück, particularly in light of the rapid progress made in Spanish-Dutch negotiations, which seemed to place pressure upon the French and the Emperor alike. On the 1st of September 1647, Dutch delegates had returned to Münster after speaking with the state's general government in The Hague. On their return to Münster, they seemed invigorated with a new sense of purpose, but they too bumped into the question of religion. 
the Eighty Years' War with Spain, after all, had really been instigated by the religious differences of the Dutch and the desire of the Dutch people to worship as they desired. Unfortunately for the Dutch, though, one could not deny the presence of Catholics in their lands, especially in land which had recently been seized from Spain and which lay outside the immediate rate of the seven united provinces that constituted the Republic. Although it might seem like a minor issue, the talks stuck on the religious regime to be instituted in these conquered lands. The Dutch wanted Spain to acknowledge the Dutch spiritual authority over this land, but the Spanish claimed this was the Pope's prerogative, not the King of Spain's, because, you know, the Pope and Catholicism and all that. Interestingly, King Philip IV seemed to disagree rather than admit defeat, and he passed the book on to the governor of the Spanish Netherlands, who couldn't be bothered dealing with that stuff, so he passed it on to a group of bishops. This latter party of bishops eventually determined that giving up spiritual authority over land that was no longer in their possession should be done, but only if it proved worthwhile in the process of peacemaking. Even the papal delegate, notoriously intolerant of concessions to Protestants, received the approval of the Pope, but he kept this secret just in case the Spanish could get away with it. The Spanish delegate, the Count of Peñaranda, was ill and desperate to return home, and he burst into tears at the Dutch intransigence. How could the Dutch willingly oppress these few Catholics in their lands after the Dutch had spent eight decades fighting for their own rights to have religious liberty? The question was a valid one, but Penuranda would have known at the centre of the debate was not the question of tolerance, but sovereignty. The Dutch wanted to strip every last vestige of authority from the Spanish government over their new lands, as Derek Croxton discerned. It was not, of course, just about religious freedom. It was about the right to decide whether there was religious freedom or not. The Dutch wanted it to be absolutely clear that it was up to them to be tolerant, If the Spanish accepted that key point, the Dutch were willing to be tolerant of their own free will, but not because a treaty required them to be. The solution to this deadlock was as typical as it was ridiculous. Peñaranda consented to give up all of Spain's authority. The Dutch would insist that this included spiritual authority, and the Spanish would maintain that it did not. A halfway home, really, which effectively meant very little, was thus the proposed settlement to a problem that mattered very little on paper. It was, Derek Croxton noted, another masterpiece of diplomatic wording, such as marked the negotiations in and around Westphalia. What happened next is relatively familiar to us. Armed with this arrangement, the Dutch negotiators returned to The Hague again to see if the final peace treaty with the Spanish could at last be hammered out. There they met some opposition, principally from the province of Zeeland, but this was overcome with Holland's promise to finance an expedition to Brazil. And so on the 30th of November 1647, as we've seen, the Dutch negotiators were given approval to sign a peace treaty with Spain. They didn't waste much time after that, and Dutch delegates made some attempts to drag the French with them, but these efforts were largely ineffective. After proposing some compromises, and mediating between the French and Spanish, a remarkable state of affairs since the Spanish and Dutch were technically at war, the French delegation wrote home to Mazarin on the 30th of December 1647, requesting that he accept the terms. The terms included 
French support for Portugal, but only in Iberia itself, continued French possession of Catalonia, with a French promise to build no new fortresses there, mediation of French conquests by the Dutch states-general, and the restoration of Duke Charles IV of Lorraine to his duchy, so long as he promised to forfeit his lands if he broke any treaties in the future. Of all of these terms, have a guess on what rubbed Matzer in the wrong way. That's right, it was Lorraine, because Lorraine, like Alsace, animated the French delegates like few other issues could. Lorraine was to remain a problem for French kings throughout the 17th and much of the 18th century. The independence of these dukes at such a sensitive area of the French border proved a thorn in the side of Louis XIV in particular, who occupied the Duchy of Lorraine between 1670 and 1697. Despite his success in other ventures, though, Louis XIV was unable to conquer the territory in any of his wars. Unlike Alsace, the region had not fallen into French hands through the Peace of Westphalia either, far from it. In fact, Duke Charles IV of Lorraine would even find time to take an active interest in the plight of Ireland and its Catholics when it came under the suppression of Cromwell's protectorate. The difficulties which the French had with the maintenance of an independent, self-interested, often hostile duke right on their doorstep is easy to understand, but their inability to conquer or annex the region dragged the question out into the 18th century, when in 1766, Lorraine was annexed and reorganised as a province. Of course, the issue of Lorraine and Alsace as well were apparently raw enough for German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck to annex the two provinces in 1871. Although by then the citizens seemed to have forgotten their independent past, the status of the region led to no end of confusion among academics writing near the end of the First World War, leading one to ask in 1915, what is the point of view of Lorraine? While Mazarin may have cared very little about the answer to this question in 1648, detaching Lorraine from the empire as he had done with Alsace was proving more difficult than he had anticipated. In the background, the Dutch, who had promised to renew their war with the Spanish if the latter were unreasonable, watched nervously to see what would happen next. The compromise on Lorraine's status meant that the French might in fact agree, but Peñaranda hoped they would not. Interestingly, he believed that with the Dutch threat gone, Spain would be able to manage the French and wrest better terms from her. At the same time, though, if the negotiations broke down because of the Spanish, the Dutch might make good their threat and resume their war in the Spanish Netherlands. Peñaranda thus gambled that Mazarin would refuse to compromise over Lorraine, and to his great relief, this gamble paid off. By standing firm on Lorraine, Mazarin may have believed that he was denying the Spanish the ability to save face, and that he was standing up for French interests. But since we know that France didn't hold Lorraine fully in its grasp until 1766, this determination to push the boundaries of France seems in retrospect like a bridge too far for Mazarin. It had the additional effect of releasing the Dutch from their bonds to France. Now that Mazarin had torpedoed the negotiations over a Lorraine compromise himself, they were no longer prepared to make war against Spain in his name. And so, on the 30th of January 1648, after much soul-searching and last-minute hesitation, the Dutch and Spanish signed their treaty at last. 
This was the Peace of Munster, and it brought officially to an end eight decades of conflict in the Low Countries. The sheer significance of the moment can't have been lost on either Mazarin or his Spanish counterparts, but he almost certainly recognised an underlying message which came with the news. If France and Spain had been unable to settle their differences while the Dutch element was in play, mediating, pressuring and cajoling as it attempted to bring both sides to the table, what hope was there for a Franco-Spanish peace now that the Dutch element was suddenly absent? Certainly, it was unlikely, but perhaps, with the Dutch and Spanish appeased, there would now be time to focus more intently on the religious settlement. So, phase three of this religious settlement process was now to begin. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One of the terms of Maximilian of Bavaria's re-entry into the war on Ferdinand's side was a promise from the emperor to pursue and conclude the religious negotiations. Maximilian had come to see the religious issues as the truly knotty morass which delayed the final peace rather than disagreement over territorial concessions. France in September 1646 and Sweden in February 1647 had already wrested what they wanted from the opposite side, but the religious settlement remained outstanding. The two pillars of Christendom met at Osnabrück, but this new act of the drama was just as frustrating because the emperor hesitated and Catholic delegates were encouraged by the intransigence of the papacy. So a new tactic was tried, and a third party, led by the new elector of Mainz, spearheaded an assembly of interested parties at Osnabrück, which would meet free from either the Emperor or Sweden's interference. The Swedes were willing to cooperate, because their more extreme Protestant allies couldn't blame them for any concessions which emerged from that gathering with the third party, but the Emperor was opposed, arguing that such a gathering would undermine his authority. 
Maximilian of Bavaria had already advised him to harness this very authority in autumn 1647 to make a religious settlement in his capacity as emperor and to wait for the others to follow suit. So a curious compromise was reached which might permit those religious discussions to proceed. In one room, Johann Salvius, the Swedish delegate, would meet with Isaac Volmar, Trotmansdorf's replacement, and in a neighbouring room, the Protestant and Catholic estates, mediated by the Elector of Mines, would assemble. It was an idea just convoluted enough to work, with moderate Catholics and Protestants overwhelming the discussions, the more hardline voices were gradually drowned out. After so many years of war, it seemed much of the venom had been sucked out of these more moderate German estates. Of particular note was the Bavarian representative, who, as directed by Maximilian, swung determinately to the side of the moderates. This proved effective, and the two sides worked quickly and continuously together, often presenting Salvius and Volmar with agreements that had already been signed, which gave neither man the time to let his own pride get in the way. Throughout March 1648, great strides in the negotiations were made, and the representatives of the major powers, interestingly, were largely carried along with these agreements. And what were the agreements? Well, the 1st of January 1624 was set as the normal date for all secularised territories. This meant that all land in Protestant hands on that date was to remain Protestant or be restored to them if it had been occupied since. Old principles enshrined in the 1555 Peace of Augsburg were updated and refined. The ecclesiastical reservation, which compelled a Catholic who converted to Protestantism to resign his bishopric, was maintained, but it was also applied to Catholics now. The principle that each independent territorial ruler had the right to determine the religion of his territory was reaffirmed, but it was also clarified so that the private faith of one's subjects would not be impacted. Limited toleration, respect for property, and a recognition of Calvinism as standing legally alongside Lutheran and Catholic creeds were also accepted. In cases where there was some doubt over the faith of a ruler or region in 1624, toleration was recommended. The whole document was a considerable achievement, as you can probably tell, and can be viewed as the de facto end to the religious wars, which had dominated the Germans since Martin Luther's Reformation had begun. Conflict had, of course, by no means been eliminated, and hardline opinions could not be ignored in every circumstance, but the general tone of the settlement was definitely promising. As the historian John Gagliardo put it, the terms of the peace settlement were also largely free of the vagueness and ambiguity which had deliberately been built into the Peace of Augsburg by an earlier and aggressively hopeful generation of Protestant and Catholic rulers who was sought to use equivocation to their own advantage. Their descendants had finally learned at great cost that lack of clarity could be enormously harmful in many unpredictable ways. They were determined to avoid it, and this time they did. Such changes and intentions would mean little, however, if the traditional institutions of the emperor, like the Aulic Council or Imperial Diet, were not also reformed to account for the religious equality. So, after more haggling, the two sides managed to reach agreement on something of a compromise, where Catholics retained a bare majority of 26 out of 50 judges, but in the event of a judgment being passed, 
an equal share of judges from both sides would be required. These compromises maintained on paper the satisfaction for Catholics and in practice satisfaction for Protestants. In the case of the Diet, that important empire-wide assembly which had been torn asunder in the pre-war years by confessional divisions, a new form of procedure was developed, called etio in partes. This procedure ensured that religious issues which were put before the imperial Diet would no longer be settled by a simple majority vote, which inevitably favoured the larger Catholic share of votes, and instead a membership would be divided into Protestant and Catholic bodies, and an equal number of persons would be on each. In all such decisions, the goal was to reduce the danger posed by the empire's stability in the event of a prince's conversion, where in the earlier years such a conversion could rupture this careful religious balance in a given region, and princes would act according to their own interpretation of the Peace of Augsburg, now everyone had a framework which would instruct them on the best way to proceed, even if the end result was to produce all this bureaucracy reminiscent of the European Union. In practice, interestingly, after 1648, cases of princes converting actually became quite rare, and the religious balance in the empire appeared to have been, in many respects, set. With the resolution of these issues in spring 1648, it seemed like the greatest hurdles to peace had been miraculously overcome. Thanks to the cooperation of the moderate Catholic and Protestant parties, the religious settlement was manufactured and advocated in such a manner as to persuade the Emperor and Swedes to agree. It was indeed significant that these moderates had acted to compromise when in some instances, Bavaria for example, they had once seemed like the greatest threat to the religious settlement. The war had persuaded them to give way, and their conviction had been transferred from their unbending religious dogma to the peace party with equal passion and resolve. With the religious settlement in hand, the pressing question now was whether the remaining issues could also be solved and a fully comprehensive peace be signed. There remained no guarantees, of course, but, to some extent at least, the writing was on the wall. And we're going to examine that writing in the next episode, History Friends, our penultimate episode of the 30 Years War series. Oh boy, I hope you'll join me for that. But in the meantime, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it so much. Keep an eye out for that episode that I'm doing with Tom Daly. I promise it should be out in the next few days. There were a few delays with it, but it's on the way. So, check that out. If you want any extra content, you know to go to Patreon by now. Over 60 hours of extra content is there waiting for you. But I'll just take my leave now and say that this has been episode 80 of the 30 Years War. You're a great history friend and I'll be seeing you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 